This is The Lonely Office, your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real, anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities, from how to not get fired to negotiating severance. We discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave that professional world alone. Do you both remember that story I told you? It was from a couple of episodes ago. It was called... Do politics have a place in the workplace? Yeah, I remember that. That was Tabitha and Brad, and those are the protagonists. Leah, you remember that one with the work spouses? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, the work wife and the work husband. There's a continuation to that story, an ending that the audience hasn't heard. To catch everybody up, Tabitha and Brandon's work relationship ended abruptly when Brandon posted an emphatic criticism of the Black Lives Matter movement on his LinkedIn. And The key feature here, remember, was that Tabitha didn't publicly support it. She didn't like it, and he got pissed, so he talked to her, and everything went wrong. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of what he posted, but just know there was a ton of emojis, a ton of capital letters. Caps Lock was on. (laughs) Even though this post did cost him this really important relationship with Tabitha, Brandon still held firm in his beliefs and criticism of BLM, and he was public about it after a couple more social posts on his LinkedIn and on his personal Facebook page. Tabitha wasn't the only one who caught wind what was going on. Because during one of his on-site days, Brandon's called into HR. That's never good. That's never good. In fact, he was told that his recent statements on social media are in direct conflict with the company's values. Therefore, they said, we're terminating your employment. So Brandon's juggling a lot of emotions and he's cleaning out his desk. He takes a few minutes to review his employee handbook. And he goes back to HR and he says, I'm confused. You're terminating me because my social posts are in direct conflict with the company's values, but I can't find those values stated anywhere in this handbook. Hmm. Who are you going to call? Well, now we have Chris here to tell us what that means. I'm excited actually to segue here into Chris. It's rare that we really get an inside guest here. And I think Chris is the quintessential inside domain expert representing companies in the employment labor law domain. Just to start, and maybe to set the stage here, Aaron, I think this continuation of sorts is really intriguing, actually. I was pretty much in the Tabitha camp, seeing that the company has taken recourse here against Brandon, although I may disagree with his perspective. He asks a a really intriguing question there at the end. Politics in the workplace is nothing new, right? The most iconic example that comes to mind for most of us may be Muhammad Ali. In 1967, when Ali was stripped of his heavyweight championship by the World Boxing Association, it was due to the values the organization held. The WBA believed at the time that Ali failed to meet the obligations expected of him as a champion when he refused induction into the army to fight in the Vietnam War. Of course, we all know Ali stood his ground and the WBA took action by stripping him of his belt. His political statements cost him three years of practicing his craft at the top of his game and millions of dollars. So that's the iconic example when we think of politics interfering with our work. But the opening story of Brandon and Tabitha is also a real one playing out every day. In just the last month, there have been numerous reports and instances of employees, and in some cases, students with job offers, having their employment terminated. Reading through first-person anonymous threads online... The confusion these actions by employers have wrought on particularly young professionals is obvious. Many are surprised to learn that their posts are not protected under First Amendment free speech laws. And even more, 
they're surprised when they realize just how tenuous their employment contracts are. Some of them beginning to ask, what does at-will employment exactly mean? Yeah. I think we wanted to delve deeper into the issue here, help clarify the legal framework that's enabling a lot of these employer actions taken against employees to help our audience better understand their own rights. And I think we also wanted to broach the discussion intellectually to understand why some of these limits exist on employers when it pertains to race, color, sex, religion, national origin. Yet other limits when it pertains to our freedom of expression don't necessarily apply. So I think we really do have the perfect guest today. Thanks again, Chris, for joining us. Yep, really happy to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Chris Collins, he's a partner in the Labor and Employment Practice Group of the firm Shepard Mullen. For over 25 years, Chris has represented employers in litigation, alleging employment discrimination, harassment, retaliation, breach of contract, tons of experience on this issue. And I think why we're particularly excited to have Chris on board is, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, is it fair to say we basically have an insider who can provide our audience professionals some intel here on how their employers or companies approach these issues? That's right. It's actually 30 years. Oh, there you go. I think it's more than 30 years now. I, I keep getting older. <laughs> I definitely consider myself an insider. I work very closely with employers, especially in financial services, professional services, law firms, dealing with internal issues, dealing with employees before we get to litigation. So I have a good sense of the mindset of employers when they're approaching issues like social media and what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so before we get into why or whether or not companies really care about what we post on social media, I wanted to hit on a point that we broached at the very top, which is this conflation of sorts that particularly young professionals have between two distinct ideas, your rights as a citizen versus your rights as an employee of a corporation. Can you speak a little about that difference? Yeah, it's an important difference, and it's a difference that many employees misunderstand but it's really fundamental. Everyone in the United States has First Amendment rights, but what those rights protect is an infringement of your right to express, for example, by government agencies, government entities, right? They don't apply or restrict private companies from taking action they want to take based on your speech. So if you happen to work for the government, whether it's the federal government or a state or a city government, yes, you have your First Amendment rights, and those First Amendment rights will restrict what your employer can do with respect to your public statements or comments, including on social media. But if you work for a private company, those protections are not going to apply. And employers can take actions with some restrictions that we'll get into later on without violating the First Amendment because it doesn't apply to private actors. Are there any exceptions to that government public sector lens? I was thinking that, Matt. I think Glassdoor community has a lot of finance and a lot of accountants, of course, work for the IRS, which I believe would constitute a public employment. So if you work for a private company that is a government contractor that works with the IRS or one of these other agencies, it's possible, depending on the circumstances, that you could get some First Amendment protections. But it's very narrow. But yeah, in some cases, those protections can be extended to private employers that have contracts, business with the government. Connecticut is a special case. We can talk about Connecticut nominally in a little bit later. Before we turn the page to the private sector, which I think the vast majority of our listeners too reside in or work for, when we say your First Amendment rights are maintained if you are an employee of a public or government sector employer, there's still limitations there. 
Yeah, and that's a really important point. Just because you have First Amendment protections doesn't mean you have carte blanche to defame or hurt other people or incite violence or anything like that. Cool. Okay. Now, turning the page, I think this is where it gets interesting. Why do companies even care about what we post on social media? I think from the perspective of our young professionals, like why would they care in Leia's serenades of Taylor Swift <laughs> or Aaron's nostalgic tweets about 80s pop culture? Not the DeLorean. <laughs> <laughs> it's very offensive, the DeLorean and Billy Joel. But it's a great question. And we had a lot of listeners ask too, I'm saying what I want to say, but why is it their business? Why do they care? The vast majority of your social media posts an employer is going to be totally uninterested in. They don't care about your cat memes. They don't care about your vacation pics. They don't care about almost anything that you put on social media. And actually, for the most part, they're not looking at it because they have other things to do. Things do come to their attention in the way that we'll talk about Tabitha and Brandon a little bit later. And that's exactly how these things can come to the attention of an employer. But for the most part, they actually don't care. But there are really two sort of categories where employers are going to pay attention and may respond or react to what you do in social media publicly. The first is where what you post in social media has a potential consequence in the workplace. And that's really a situation where you've posted or someone's posted something in social media that the employer thinks or believes may actually impact the employee's ability to do their job by impacting how they relate and get along with other employees. And so that's very important for employers, especially in professional services where people have to work collegially and collaboratively together. So employers are concerned about that. Right. The second thing is that employers are also very concerned about reputational issues. So when you post online, when any employee posts online, it's very easy for anyone looking at that post to figure out where that person works. And so there's an automatic sort of association or a linkage between the person and what they're doing online and where they work. And so employers know this. And so they're very concerned that one of their employees says online is going to blow back on them or be attributed to them in some way as a statement of the employer or of the employer's values. So employers are very concerned about that, especially in professional services, especially the banks and management consulting and law firms, where you're actually interfacing with customers and clients and trying to get and maintain business. Reputation really matters. And that's what they're really concerned about. Can we dig on that one point for a second, Chris? Oh, sure. We actually just came off an episode where we talked about the convergence that's happening between our personal and professional lives, where in many ways, you're adopting a hybrid identity of your professional self and social self. And what you're getting at here speaks to that, where you may be making a post that maybe in a prior realm or time, you consider to be a personal opinion. Why in that case, can't the poster simply say, hey, I'm speaking for myself? Or is it even their legal responsibility to say that? Why don't we take it face value? Yes, these posters are just speaking on their own behalf, regardless of their affiliation with whatever company. Yeah, we see that sometimes where, especially in academia, where a professor might post something and say, I'm making the statement in my personal capacity, not with respect to my university. And some people do that with respect to their companies as well. I think that from the employer's perspective, in most cases, that's not going to be sufficient. Why is that? Because in the view of the public, clients and customers, you have an employee who has a certain perspective or point of view that the employer is employing, that is their representative. That connection is something that is not easily broken, right? 
Given the realities of the internet, given the realities of the work environment, especially in professional positions, that association is really strong between the employee and the employer. Employers are really sensitive to that because they know that customers and clients and third parties and the public are going to make that association regardless of any disclaimers that are put up. So I was going to say, I'm kind of falling the same camp as Matt. I may disagree with Brandon's perspective or his criticism, whatever that is. And my thought was like, okay, well, if he just added a disclaimer to that, would that be a get out of jail free card? And what I'm hearing you say, just to kind of just state the obvious, in most cases, still no, that's still not appropriate. Like you can't just get out of jail free by just saying this isn't the view of my company, but in most cases, that's right. The only situation where that disclaimer is really helpful is where there might be some confusion as to whether the person is speaking in their individual capacity or is a spokesperson for their employer. Mm. And then, yeah, that disclaimer makes a big difference there. But in most of the cases we're talking about, there's no real confusion. We know this person is just talking about their own personal views. So the disclaimer really doesn't accomplish much in those situations. Does it just boil down to it's a private company and they don't have to employ you if they don't want to? I think Leah's question is tied with this concept at-will employment which has some legal implications, I think a lot of folks just are confused about what that means. So for private employers, the default presumption in the United States, very different than the rest of the world, but in the United States, the default presumption is that you are an at-will employee. And for most employees, if you look at your employee handbook, even if you look at your higher offer letters, you're going to see all kinds of words about at-will employment, because that is the default, and it is what most employers have with their employees. And that basically means that you can leave for any reason, and the employer can terminate you for any reason. Neither side is committed. Now, there are some restrictions, some limitations on the ability to do that based on public statements and social media, but they're really very narrow. We talked about the First Amendment. It's usually not going to work. There's some others we can talk about too, but the default situation is unless you have an employment agreement, a contract in writing, that deviates from at-will employment. You're an at-will employee, and they, employers can terminate you for really no reason, or a reason such as we think it's going to harm our reputation, or in the current verbiage, it's inconsistent with our values. That's the way it's cast now. You mentioned other countries do it differently. Many European countries, at-will employment is not the default and not the standard. There's lots of built-in protections that prevent employers or make it difficult for employers to terminate employees for no reasons or any really even good reason. It's very hard to terminate someone unless you go through a very rigorous process and have very particular reasons. And even then, the employer still has to pay sometimes on the way out. So why a lot of companies, by the way, are sometimes reluctant to work in France is because of these restrictions. But they're also in other places in Europe, too. It's just generally in Europe outside of the UK, at-will employment is not the presumption. The presumption is that you will not get and cannot get terminated unless there's really compelling reasons that are defined in statute. It's just the opposite in the United States. And that's not going to change anytime soon in the United States. The country is committed to at-will employment. Now, there are lots and lots of statutory restrictions on at-will employment. You can't terminate someone because of their race, their religion, or discriminatory reasons. For whistleblowers have lots of protections, right? So there's lots of sort of chipping away at at-will employment in the United States. It's gone on for a while, but it still is the default. Before we talk about those limitations, it seems like in the States, the exception to the rule in these employment contracts is when the employee has a cause clause in their contracts. I have experience with this, having sold two companies and lawyers baking in very employee 
friendly cause clauses in my case, there is a bit of a feeling of liberation you feel when you have that cause clause because it does really restrict the company severely as to the reasons they can cite for removing you. And then if they do, there's monetary compensation and penalties that come into the case. Yeah. In the United States, the way you get to the exception is not the European way, which is by statutes, by laws that they pass, but rather by negotiating a contract or getting a contract that vitiates to some degree at-will employment. And Matt, what you just described is the paradigm case where somebody has an employment agreement that limits termination except for cause. So in order for an employer to terminate someone before the end of the contract term, there has to be cause for that termination. That's much closer to the European model. So if you're one of these people who has an employment agreement, you do need to pay attention to the definition of cause. It's very important. I would point out, though, with respect to social media and the issues we're talking about in particular is look at that definition very carefully because oftentimes in the definition of cause, there is something like reputational harm. And that may well be the hook that employers can use to terminate someone who has made some social media posts that reasonably could be interpreted as posing reputational harm to the employer. Now, if you have a contract with a cause definition, and even if it has, as part of the definition of cause, reputational harm, you're still better off than an at-will employee because These are all things the employer then has to prove. They have to prove reputational harm. They have to prove what you did is reasonably likely to cause harm to the company. It goes a long way to giving you more protections for sure. I find it kind of ironic, Matt, that you brought that up just because the the reason that we have such a big startup culture in the U.S. and so much innovation is because in a country where we don't have at-will employment, there's a lot more risk in starting a company and a lot more potential cost. So... That's why we've got all these wonderful startups in California. No, there's no doubt. The at-will piece is definitely like a lubricant to the economy of sorts. Yeah, it's a very capitalist thing for me to say, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But I think from the perspective of a founder moving into a larger company, you do seek those clauses, those protections, precisely because you're so used to working in a regime that's fairly easy to enact you know, decisions. And then you go into this very strict regime, you can easily be isolated. I just think from a founder's perspective, there's a lot of reason why you'd want to carry that over so that you can maintain whatever it is that you do that made your startup successful into the new regime under the company. I wanted to do is a listener temperature check, maybe from the perspective of someone sitting in the Midwest listening, going through a range of emotions as they're listening to this, coming from a blue collar state and a region like Northeast Ohio, where unions were strong and factories were big for so long. There was an adversarial relationship oftentimes between the corporation or the business and the employee because of the treatment of workers and conditions and especially physical labor where there's molten metal and all kinds of you could turn into the Terminator T-1000 at any moment if you fall into a (laughs) vat of melted metal. Just sort of looking at the employer as an entity in which they owed the employee something in the sense that, hey, listen, we're putting at times in factories our lives on the line, breathing in fumes, asbestos, all that. So that's my prism that I was looking for. I know that side of things. And when people are listening, I know there's listeners who are still in that space going, wait a second, this at will thing, this whole thing, this language, Mm -hmm. all this stuff is really just another way for corporations and businesses to take advantage of employees. Here's the other emotional check on the other side. The other side is now for me as a business owner, 
and now as a young entrepreneur, and Matt, we've talked about this, I've come to you for advice with a lot of stuff because it's like, now my world's changed. So now I'm going, wait a second. <laughs> you flip to the dark I'm side. I'm like, I ha- you're telling me I got to keep this person who doesn't work. They come in, they do 30 minutes. And all of a sudden, they I don't know them anything. Cut them loose. Yeah. So like, I totally get it, right? So these are very real perspectives. And I just wanted to illustrate that underlying tension. Maybe that's the foundation really underneath all of this, that sort of push and pull. We've talked about on this show before, and what I love about it is we come out at times pro-employee voice, and at sometimes, hey, you know, we feel the pains of an employer. And we've talked about the startup journey. There's 101 reasons why your company or your small business, when you start, can fail. There's any number of reasons. You need every reason why it can succeed. And if it turns out that your company fails because a dismissal of a certain employee when you're a team of five, you're making less than 100K in recurring revenue, a lawsuit gets filed. That's the worst of reasons for a small business to fail. And so in that case, something like at-will employment is a huge advantage and facilitator of small businesses too. Let me jump in because I think it's a fascinating sort of philosophical or public policy question. How do you get the balance right there? Look, in the United States, we've taken this approach, which is at-will employment subject to lots and lots of constraints and restrictions, non-discrimination, whistleblower, contracts, unions, etc. So in the U.S., we've got default at-will employment with lots and lots of checks and balances, more every day, by the way, because there's more and more statutes. That's the model. I think that model works pretty well. It supports an entrepreneurial sort of approach, but also protects employees from being abused and taken advantage of. It can always be improved. Let's talk about the balance now moving into some of the federal laws and the state laws here. And so what I'm ascertaining as I hear you, Chris, is that the default model here in the states is at-will employment. And then there's a set of checks and balances that apply that emanate both from federal law and state law. And I think if I have a frustration along those lines where I feel there may be some more room for additional checks and balances to come either from a federal or state level. So let's review federal laws first. So there's Title VII, basic legislation grouped in with Civil Rights Legislation Act. We've talked about this before, but maybe another primer could be helpful here. Yeah, so we can start with the anti-discrimination laws, federal, and they're mirrored in the states as well, by the way. Probably the most relevant here with respect to some of the social media posts that we see recently that are getting a lot of attention. So basically, Title VII and, and similar laws prohibit employers from discriminating, taking any kind of adverse action based on a person's characteristics, protected characteristics, their race, their religion, their gender, their national origin, sexual orientation. With respect to social media in particular, employers can't target anyone because of their characteristics as opposed to what they're posting. So if an employer is treating people differently with respect to their social media or in any respect because of any of these characteristics, then they're engaging in discrimination and that's going to be problematic. That's going to be illegal. So that's an important protection there that's provided under federal and state laws. Got it. And taking it to the here and now, the most current political news cycle having to do with Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm mentioning this because I just see a lot of confusion out there and I think it's worth getting the legal perspective on this. So in a case where someone makes a post that maybe is deemed pro-Palestinian and maybe that user is Palestinian, him or herself, do any of these Title VII provisions around national origin apply? Yeah, it's a good question. And the answer is the answer nobody likes to hear from lawyers, which is maybe, maybe not. It depends. Um, (laughs) But let me explain what that means. So the employer cannot sort of target an employee based on their post because of their characteristic. 
That doesn't mean that they can't take some kind of action based on the content of what they're posting, right? And those oftentimes come together and it's not easy to make that distinction, but that's the distinction that's important. If an employer is taking an adverse action because someone has not just simply made a pro-Palestinian statement, which is probably going to be protected if they're Palestinian, but is making some other kind of statements, either advocate violence or support for violence. And same thing for somebody who is on the other side. That is something that is distinct, or at least conceptually distinct from their characteristic. Probably the clearest example of this is a real example of what happened very recently. So an employer terminated an employee because they made statements that were viewed as anti-Semitic with respect to what's happening in the Middle East. They also terminated somebody who made statements that were considered anti-Palestinian as well. And so there, in that case, it's hard to say that they were discriminating against one or the other because of their national origin, for example, because they're treating everyone sort of the same with respect to their statements that are advocating violence with respect to that dispute. I think the biggest problem is that we have to be careful not to conflate the discrimination from the content of what somebody is posting. Right. And just to flesh out that example you shared, I think that was may have been a hospital yep. where that happened. And, and what's interesting is it goes beyond the professional services economy to physicians. And exactly what you said, the hospital or employer actions weren't bound to one view on the issue. In one case, they took action against the statement that was anti-Palestinian, in another case, anti-Semitic. Before we go into the regime of state laws here, are there any other federal laws that play voice here? Well, yeah, the National Labor Relations Act has implications beyond a union work environment. And what the National Labor Relations Board has said, in certain circumstances, what employees put on their social media can be protected under the NLRA if what they're doing is talking about terms and conditions of employment, if they're talking about the workplace Mm -hmm. in some way. So, for example, if somebody goes on social media and rants and says, I really think my employer is not paying their workforce the way they should, employer's not going to be happy with that post. But that post is protected under the NLRA, as long as that person is not a supervisor who's making that statement. I'm just thinking about the Glassdoor app and Fishbowl right now, Mac. That would negatively impact the companies. That's really surprising. Employer's not going to be happy with that statement on social media, but the National Labor Relations Board says that that kind of a statement is protected as long as it's not defamatory. I mean, there's certain things you can't get away with. You can't get away with defaming your coworkers or your supervisors. But if you're talking about terms and conditions of employment, those are the buzzwords, talking about the workplace situation on social media. We see a lot of posts, I think Aaron said, on Glassdoor on Fishbowl, on any social media form about unequitable pay between genders, where a female worker at a company is paid 60% of what the male equivalent is. And that occurs to me that like that's terms and conditions and probably would fall under that statute in that case. Yep. Probably would not have to be worried against retaliation unless they want a lawsuit. That's exactly right. As long as they're not defaming, as long as they're posting sort of in good faith, right? They're not making stuff up maliciously, then it's going to be protected. So moving now into the state law regime, Chris, here's the dirty secret. The real reason why Leia moved to California. (laughs) I'm like, what is it? (laughs) California has more employee friendly labor laws. Namely, there are labor laws that prohibit employers from retaliating against employees for their political activities and beliefs. And so Leia, of course, has hundreds of thousands of followers on a TikTok account. So she has reasons to be residing in California. Is that the case? I mean, is California, in fact, more employee friendly? (laughs) Oh, for sure. California 
New York City, I think, are in a arms race to see who can be the most protective of employees. It's funny, if you watch the legislation, California will pass one law, New York will top the law in terms of employee protections, and then California will come over the top again. And then there's Massachusetts, who's trying to get into the action. The usual states that you would think were going to be protective of employees are. In the area that we're talking about here, social media and political statements, there are some protections in state laws, but they're very narrow. In most cases, they're not going to give protection to sort of general comments about politics or political views that somebody posts online. I'll give you an example in New York and D.C., for example. Both jurisdictions say that employers can't discriminate against someone because of their political activities. You might read that and say, wow, then I can talk about politics and social media. Well, you're not because of the way the political activity, that term is defined under those laws. It is explicitly limited to things like running for office, campaigning, or fundraising. It's not going to apply to political statements, public policy statements that you put on social media. So it's not going to give you the protections that you need. California has a little broader protection, but still may not give you the protection that you think you have for saying whatever you want on your social media. And most other states have no protections at all. Of all the states that I thought were the most <laughs> pro-employee friendly, Connecticut was on the very last end of the list. Is that right? So my understanding is Connecticut actually has special exemptions here that apply. Yeah, Connecticut is wild. It's a little surprising, I guess. I'm sitting in Connecticut right now, <laughs> by the way. So what Connecticut has done, and no other state has done this, it has basically taken the First Amendment. You know, we talked about the First Amendment. It only applies to government agencies, not to private employers. And it has, by statute, applied it to private employers. A lot of people don't know this. So essentially, in Connecticut, under state law, you do have First Amendment rights that you can exercise to protect yourself against adverse employment action against your private employer. Very unusual. Now, there are restrictions on that. There are limitations on that. If the employer can show that it has some detrimental impact on the business, could be reputational, then it may not be protected. But at least in Connecticut, you have a leg to stand on with respect to your social media political posts, whereas in most other states, you're not going to even have a leg to stand on. Yeah, that was surprising to me, honestly, when I read it. Before moving to some of the tactics, I think one of the core issues that the story with Brandon and Tabitha manifested, you mentioned two categories of social media posts that employers do care about. One was the type of post that implicates your coworkers or workplace. But then the other category is this increasingly prevalent is values driven. And I think the Brandon and Tabitha story speak to it, but they're also real world examples. So the law firm Winston and Strawn rescinded the offer of NYU law student Rhina Workman for publishing what they said, certain inflammatory comments regarding Hamas's recent terrorist attack on Israel. These comments profoundly conflict with Winston and Strawn's values as a firm, really stressing values as a firm. In another case involving Harvard and Columbia students, job offers were rescinded to a number of students over their apparent signatures on public statements about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that were circulated online. Again, in that case, the employer's view was, these statements are simply contrary to our firm's values, and we thus concluded that rescinding these offers was appropriate in upholding our responsibility to provide a safe and inclusive work environment for all employees. We already mentioned the incident with the two physicians at the New York hospital. So what do these companies mean when they say comments that conflict with our values as a firm? Right. 
It's a vague term, not at all clear exactly what they mean. That is the mantra that we're hearing over and over again, conflicts with our values as an organization, as a company. So if I were to interpret that, I would interpret it to mean basically the two things that we already talked about, and maybe a third, it would translate the values talk into those categories. Concerns about protecting the workplace, making sure people can work together, reputational issues, DEI commitments, and generally just having a productive work environment that's positive. I think that's how I would reflect those things. We talk about values and the way they apply to the repute of the company. Of course, we live in a thankfully democratic society where there's a nuance of acceptable, let's call it social opinions that don't fall into the camp of hate speech, but may fall into the camp of minority opinion. And in those cases, is resorting to language like value, is it just too enabling for the company then to be subjective on the point of repute, where the value may represent a minority opinion, but that employer deems it to be against the repute of his company and empowers employers in a way that could be dangerous, ultimately silencing these opinions? Yeah, I think that it's easy for employers to use that vernacular of values. I think, though, if you interrogated an employer, I mean, employers are people, right? If you asked most senior management of a company or human resources, what do they mean by values? They may give you sort of what I talked about. We're concerned about reputation, the ability of people to work together, our work environment. But they may also say things like, we are committed to anti-violence, something like that. And so with respect to you know the more recent issues, I think that was probably the trigger. The statements that were really at issue here were statements with that either endorsed or excused violence. Violence is always a big issue for employers, especially as it impacts the workplace. That's very helpful, actually. Frankly, if you are a citizen of this country with strong opinions, but you're also an employee of a company, you would appreciate a bit of clarity on what the company considers its values. And if they listed that transparently, it would just provide a bit of a navigation or a path forward for the the private citizen, but also employee to be careful what they post. Because the last time I checked, I've never worked for a firm where there's been a Ten Commandments list of moral or political values. I've never seen that. Like that's never been there. But at the same point, the companies are saying, well, that conflicts with our values. It begs the question, what are your values? Exactly what Brendan asked. Yeah. And I think if you were to look in, in most handbooks, and we can talk about Brandon's question about where are these values in the handbook, it will be sprinkled here and there, things that the company can point to. Things like respect in the workplace, commitment against hostility and, and harassment. But for the most part, you're right. There's not going to be any sort of general statements about commitments to values, certainly not in the employee handbook, because that has to do primarily with workplace issues. So, But you make a good point. Companies have not probably done a good job of articulating or putting in writing what exactly their values are here. Matt, you highlighted using the comparison or allegory like Ten Commandments. But let's just say a company starts, Matt, you've started companies, company starts is it in right. their interest now to always say, listen, considering this climate, we really should have our values stated explicitly, not just woven into the language of the handbook? And is that just a result of the contemporary nature of virality and digital virality? Was it not really a problem before? Because again, if this person has this opinion, they're just telling their aunt, or maybe they're going to a town hall meeting and it's enclosed. There's barriers there with that communication. It's not imprinted digitally with some level of permanence. Is this more of a contemporary issue and a necessity for employers to say, hey, listen, we really need to have those pieces in place now so that we don't have ambiguity to protect not just ourselves, but also provide clarity to the employee. 
Well, so we've had a lot of episodes on The Lonely Office where we've talked about, you know, Edelman has a trust barometer survey that they do annually. It's it's widely acclaimed. And year after year, all the polls when it comes to employees and the way they view themselves vis-a-vis the organization have concluded that the employee desires to align themselves with the leadership and the CEO on social cultural opinions, be it kind of green energy transition, social politics, cultural politics. This is important. And I think it's part of the convergence we've talked about on the show that's happened between our social and professional lives. And I would argue on the basis of those surveys, the answer is that, yeah, this is a modern day phenomenon that now, probably more so than historically, companies should be posting this stuff very transparently. And by stuff, I mean these list of values they stand for because the employee personifies themselves and identifies themselves with the company and its leadership. And I think these cases where we see, for example, a student applying for certain firms and then getting fired and they're saying, you don't align with our values. Well, we can list your values. What are your values? And I think it's fair for companies to have at-will employment, but then it's also equally fair to ask companies to list those values publicly. So Glassdoor has a poll or ranking. They started a few years ago where they list companies by DE&I and they rank them. And so there's already this move towards a bit of transparency of companies. Tell us who you are. Tell us what opinions you have and let's see how we align with those. Yeah, it's a great point. The values of, of corporations were in the 1950s. There was make money, return value to shareholders. That was it. That was the state of value in one sense. (laughs) It's clearly a contemporary change, right, or trend that corporations are trying and are really, in some cases, being forced to commit to values. We see this over and over again. We see it a lot in things like climate change. A lot of companies have come out with respect to climate change and sustainability. And maybe that's easy for a corporation to state its values there. D and I commitments, right? Many companies are really out front and endorsing their commitment to DNI, not just with their employees, but with who they do business with. And so we're seeing more of that. The one thing I would say is that with respect to politics, though, it's really going to be hard for companies to see anything with respect to their values that relates to politics without having a lot of difficulty and a lot of attention and knowing even what to say about it. Climate change is political. It's inherently, as a society, we've talked on the shows before, where a lot of these social issues have become politicized. I personally see climate change as a scientific issue. But let's face it, in society, it is a political issue, as was vaccines. COVID have become a political issue. So ultimately, if everything devolves into politics, perhaps it's reasonable to ask them how they stand on certain political issues as well. Climate change is certainly political, but many companies have taken positions on that. Same thing with the COVID vaccine. Some companies were really about front and what their views were on that. Can you share the case of the Mama versus Pathway? Speaking of political and in companies, what lessons can be extracted <laughs> from that case? It's an interesting case. It's a Connecticut case. So Mama was an employee of a relatively small company. She posted on her public Facebook site, was she meant to be amusing, I think, but it had political implications. The heading was, no wonder liberals are so confused. Had a picture of a whole bunch of people with one words under their names that were supposed to be humorous and funny. They had pictures of Senator Elizabeth Warren with the caption of Indian and Caitlyn Jenner with the word woman. And all of the posts were political, but those were the ones that were noticed by coworkers. But coworkers brought it to the company's attention and were complaining about it. They didn't appreciate it. And the employer reviewed this, took the position that this was really inconsistent with their values, right? Their DEI commitments, asked her to take the post down. 
or at least make it private. She said she wouldn't do that. First Amendment, right? She was expressing her views. And the employer said, well, if you're not going to take it down, then we're going to fire you because at will employment, right? So this resulted in litigation. Uma sued her company under this Connecticut law that we talked about, which incorporates the First Amendment into applies it to private employers and basically said that this was because of her political views that her employment was terminated. Case was litigated. And what the employer said was, no, it didn't have to do with the political views. What really was going on here is had implications in the workplace. She wasn't going to be able to work collegially or cooperatively with her fellow employees because she's making these divisive statements. Um, That was the employer's defense. I think it's interesting for a couple reasons. First of all, to get some insight into how employers view these things. Many of employers would have just said, "Ah, don't worry about it. Everybody get back to work. This employer took a different attitude, probably not wise in Connecticut because they got sued. The employer tried to get the case dismissed early on. And the judge said, I'm not going to dismiss it right away because I think there's some issues here as to whether this statement on, on social media and Facebook really had an impact on the job. Did it really have an impact on coworkers? There's not a lot of evidence of that. So the case is going to proceed. It ultimately settled. We don't know how or what the terms were, but that was the ultimate resolution. I think it's interesting because it gives you some insight into how at least one employer viewed social media. Again, I think many employers probably wouldn't have fired this person. And it shows how this played out in Connecticut. Love to segue to practical things that maybe our listeners, professionals, young professionals can do, incorporate into their social media posting habits to prevent the employer taking action. I wanted to say, aside from moving to Connecticut (laughs) to be protected, what are some other tactics that come to mind that could be helpful? I've been doing training for employees for 30 years now on the workplace conduct issues. And one of the things that I've always said from day one at least way back in the day, is be very careful about what you put in emails. Think before you email, because those emails last forever, and they will always be there. Nothing you can do about it. I don't know why Leah's laughing, by the way. (laughs) I'm laughing because long ago, there was an argument between a client and another agency about a, a graphic, and my emails were subpoenaed, every email that I sent in relation to that project. Oh my goodness. And I'm just laughing because I'm like, I learned that lesson. Not that I had said anything that had anything to do with the case, but I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) every email that I sent about this project is now being shipped off to these companies and lawyers. And it it was a good lesson to learn. Wow. Yeah. People would email without thinking that anything could come of that email and that it was really a private conversation. But employees have gotten the message about emails and are really careful now about emails. Employees are not careful about text messages. And so that's the new horizon. Mm. So what I now say to people is be careful what you put in text messages when you're sending text messages to work colleagues, even if you're using your private devices, right? Now I'm starting to think about all the texts I'm sending privately, but continue. (laughs) (laughs) I would now say, think now before you post. So it doesn't mean that you you know you can't post your whatever you want to post, but you just need to be thoughtful about it because your posts really are public. And frankly, even if you're posting in a non-public forum, it could become public because things get copied or photographed. It's funny, Chris, that you say that now you say that because right as I was sort of graduating from college is when social media was really ramping up and we were told over and over and over again, don't have public social media, 
don't post any, you know, it was more like photos of you partying or drinking or whatever, because it could, you might not get a job. I don't know. I think what's happening is that more so now, especially in the last few months, but even before that, um, what people post on social media is now becoming more relevant in the workplace and being paid more attention to ways that it had not historically. And what's happening is someone sees something online they don't like. One of their first thoughts is, who does this person work for? Mm. Sort of a part of a doxing approach. Right. And so I think that more often employers are becoming aware of and paying attention to social media in ways that they really hadn't. In this regard, with all these incidents of employers taking action against employees, what we're talking about, for me, it's really alarming that we have discussions amongst presidential candidates that the government should start requiring social media users to disclose their names on digital posts. This actually came up just a few days ago in the most recent Republican GOP debates. It's just like so frightening to me, dystopian, that this type of discussion, frankly, is even happening where you would mandate your name being posted, partially because I'm the creator of an anonymous, semi-anonymous social network called Fishbowl, but also partially because like, I just think it goes against the tradition of what this country stands for. And I can only imagine the reason why those candidates walked back what they said was because of the groundswell of opinion that erupted, likely from the legion of Reddit and Fishbowl users coming out. I think that's the backdrop here, too. On the theme of anonymity, it gets me thinking about, Matt, what you're talking about, Fishbowl, what you created, and then also Glassdoor users, right? Look, when I had particular political bents or a viewpoint, and when it became a marketing tool for my storytelling, I just knew that I was doing my own thing. I was my own employer. It was me saying it, and you could either employ me or not. That being said, there's got to be a space for all viewpoints, even ones we disagree with, right? And it's gone now from the water cooler and it's gone now from the private circles and the telephone calls to the digital space. So what I love about Fishbowl, what I love about the Glassdoor app is that it at least ha- provides this semi-anonymous or anonymous feature where we can have these conversations because here's the thing, the digital platforms aren't going away. Yeah, from the employer's perspective, in some respects, employers like the anonymity because the statement then could not give rise to a claim of retaliation. You can't retaliate against someone if you don't know who they are. I do think you've got to be careful ultimately in the extreme cases about where you post even in an anonymous platform. And I say extreme cases because, you know, that anonymity will be legally protected in most circumstances, right? It's very hard to break down that wall, but it can be broken down in certain circumstances, right? Chris, can I just say you, Facebook groups offer anonymous posting, but what most people don't realize is when you do a anonymous post in a Facebook group, it's not anonymous to the admin of the Facebook group. Now, this is unlike Glassdoor and Fishbowl, where that's not the case. But in this Facebook group case, most people don't know that. And they end up posting stuff that perhaps for the reasons they didn't bother to read the terms and conditions of Facebook. I think I've shared previously where there was someone said something inflammatory on a town hall chat, which was anonymous, but ended up being reprimanded for it. It was because he had then told people that it was him Uh, and sort of bragged about it, which because everyone was like, wait a minute, how are people getting penalized for something that they said in an anonymous forum? But it was because he just had not been very discreet in the the (laughs) office. So there you go. Chris, last piece of advice here. You mentioned the two categories and the category where we're talking about the values driven conflict, where you just maybe have a post that differs from the values of the employer. Are there Any recommendations that you would provide the listener here or the professional on how they can still get their point across? And the reason I say that is we don't want these tactics to read as inadvertent as it may be tools to silence opinion, particularly minority opinions are are most need of a voice. 
Yeah, so this is hard, right? Because people feel so impassioned by these political issues and ideas. And so they want to be impassioned in what they post. And that's certainly understandable. But I think it's useful. Again, this is part of being thoughtful about what you post. And look to make sure you're not doing things that look like that you are inciting violence or cheering for violence or things like that. Make sure that you're not doing things that will make it difficult for you to continue to work with your different viewed or diverse colleagues. Now, I'm not going to sit here and lecture and say, don't post that because it's going to have problems for your employer. You may make a decision at the end of the day that these are important commitments for you and you really want to say it the way you want to say it on social media. I think the best advice is before you do that, take a pause, think about it, and think about whether you want to say it a different way. And maybe you don't. And maybe you want to go for it. Leah, we're talking about emails and text messages the big problem there is is that people would text and email without thinking so much. They didn't take the pause. And so I think the best advice is take a pause before you hit post. Sounds like good advice for Elon Musk, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Can I make just one additional point? Because you're yep. talking about practicalities and what to think about. And this is one of the most important ones. If you are interfacing or communicating with another employee directly, and this goes back to Brandon and Tabitha issues in particular, even if it's outside of the workplace on social media, nothing to do with work, be alert and be careful there because you're dealing with a coworker. And one of the biggest misconceptions that employees have is that, well, if it's outside of the workplace, all the bets are off. The rules don't apply. Forget the employee handbook. And that's a mistake because you really have to adopt the mindset that whenever you're interfacing, dealing with an employee, a coworker, a colleague, the employee handbook rules, the ideas about respect, respectful treatment and anti-harassment and hostile work environment, all those things apply. So you really need to be cognizant of that, even if it's on Facebook, even if you're just commenting in social media. Chris, thanks again for joining us today. Wealth of wisdom. You definitely represented that insider employer company perspective that I think our listeners have reaped a lot of benefit from. So I appreciate it. Great. It was fun. I appreciate it. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning into The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. And make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities, where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app. And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. 